0: This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning this is the renaissance of men you are the renaissance
1: hello my name is will spencer and welcome to poetry for men part of the renaissance of men podcast before we tackle this week's poem i'd like to say a personal thank you i wasn't sure how men would react to me reading and interpreting poetry in a podcast about masculinity, but your response has been overwhelmingly positive. The number of supportive comments I received, in various communities I'm a part of, not to mention emails and Twitter DMs from men that I admire, was extremely encouraging to me that there's something in here to be pursued. I had planned to sail this course regardless, and even row across the ocean if necessary, because I believe sincerely in the power of beauty and art to inspire, transform, and even heal us as men but all of your comments arrived like a well-timed wind in my sails, and with them I look forward to reaching the far shore together. This week, I'll be reading and examining an all-time classic of American poetry, Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow was a 19th century writer and is one of the most accomplished literary figures in all of American history. Up there with Herman Melville, Mark Twain, and Ernest Hemingway. Longfellow even has a bust installed in the poet's court of Westminster Abbey in London, earning a place of honor alongside memorials to Dickens, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Oscar Wilde, Milton, C.S. Lewis, Lord Byron, and many more. In fact, Longfellow is one of the few American writers to be so honored, and is the only American poet, to be honored with a bust. Although today he's perhaps less well-known than those figures, probably due to the departure of poetry from our contemporary education and for other reasons which I'll get into in a moment. Longfellow was born in 1807 in Portland, Massachusetts, which would later become part of Maine. While it would be easy for me to read his Wikipedia, I'll save you some time and provide a link in the show notes for you to research him on your own. He's a remarkable man and is well worth the effort. What I'll do instead is provide some facts that will shed some light on the poem. For the purposes of context. Longfellow attended the prestigious universities of Harvard and Bowdoin, and while his father attempted to press him into a legal career after graduation, Henry's translation of an ode by the Roman poet Horace went viral in its time and earned Longfellow a newly endowed professorship at Bowdoin, teaching modern languages. As part of the new gig, he was awarded $1,000, the equivalent of $25,000 today, and a trip to Europe to prepare. This was in 1825 and Longfellow was only 18 years old. The following year, Longfellow set sail for Europe and traveled extensively from 1826 through 1829. This included visits to France, Spain, Italy, Germany, and the UK. Along the way, he apparently taught himself French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and German, and spent time with Washington Irving in Madrid, who encouraged him to pursue writing. Back in the US, Longfellow began teaching at Bowdoin and eventually moved to Harvard, And while at Harvard, he lived in the building that served as George Washington's headquarters during the siege of Boston in 1775. Longfellow began publishing poetry in his early 30s. Psalm of Life was written in 1838, and by 1841, none other than Edgar Allan Poe wrote to him in a private letter of the, quote, fervent admiration which your genius has inspired in me, end quote. And Poe later called him, quote, unquestionably the best poet in America. Longfellow's style is typically described as lyric poetry, which emphasizes personal thoughts and feelings. And as we'll see in the poem, drawing from the European tradition, he focuses on timeless mythological and moral themes, rather than contemporaneous historical American themes. These two factors likely contributed to his wild success as a writer. His poetry spread across the Atlantic, being translated into Italian, French, Spanish, and German in his lifetime. By 1874, he was earning an incredible $3,000 per poem, the equivalent of almost $70,000 today. As an aside, I'd like to highlight what this says about the presence of poetry in American life at the time versus today. It was part of the life of every man, not simply a pursuit for the most well-to-do. Unfortunately, as is usually the case, Longfellow's popularity became his critical undoing. Later critics would call him a mere imitator of the Europeans whose traditions he so loved. His musical rhymes, which appealed to thousands and perhaps millions around the world, including many children, became a point of critique, as modern poets like Walt Whitman and Robert Frost abandoned the form. In the 20th century, literary scholar Kermit Vanderbilt noted, quote, increasingly rare is the scholar who braves ridicule to justify the art of Longfellow's popular rhymings. Well, I'm not necessarily a man who believes that what is popular is necessarily bad. The taste of the so-called common man can have much to teach us about what is good, true, timeless, and unclouded by elitist concerns. So it is my honor to read this classic poem to you and celebrate a gifted poet who helped shape the American character and the lives of countless boys who aspired to the nobility and strength embodied in this poem. This is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Psalm of Life. what the heart of the young man said to the psalmist. Tell me not, in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act, that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating, funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb-driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant, let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing, with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. I hope you enjoyed that reading. Let's dig in. The fun thing about this poem is there's so many places to start. Unlike last week's poem by Rilke, The Man Watching, it's not necessary to begin at the end and work backwards. Although the closing line, learn to labor and to wait, is so resonant and has this echoing quality when the poem closes. But we'll get back to that. I think for context, we'll begin at the beginning. What the heart of the young man said to the psalmist. So what does that mean? This isn't a poem with someone speaking aloud. It's not a dialogue. It is what it says it is, what the heart of a young man in his early thirties or perhaps younger is saying to a psalmist, which in Longfellow's time could have been a minor clergy figure who sang songs or preached to the assembled church faithful. You likely can imagine this psalmist as an old, biblically legalistic figure, a gray Protestant if you like. You've probably seen him in movies. So imagine that this is what this young man is saying to that figure in his heart. He's sitting in the pews on Sunday listening to a sermon, and his heart is talking back. To demonstrate this, I need to highlight the rhythmic meter of the poem, which is called trochaic tetrameter. What this basically means is that there are pairs of stressed and unstressed syllables, or trochase, and each line has four of them, so tetrameter. Tell me not in mourn. Full numbers, life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead, that slumbers bum 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 What does that sound like? It's a heartbeat. Bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum. This young man's heart is literally speaking. And here you can see the layers that Longfellow was working with. There are the overt words that he's using. Beneath that are the imagery and themes. And beneath that is the linguistic feeling, the art of the sound of words. And that is poetry, the art of the sound and meaning of words. So, what is this young man's heart saying? There are nine stanzas in the poem, and the first two are direct rebuttals to the psalmist, who seems to be preaching some sort of distorted and lifeless version of Christianity. First stanza, tell me not in mournful numbers life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. So he's saying, don't tell me all the ways that life is meaningless in comparison to heaven. This makes my soul slumber, because if life is meaningless, why should I bother living? So the soul sleeps, or essentially is dead in response to such a preaching. Next stanza, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. So here Longfellow asserts that life is a real and genuine thing. Death or heaven isn't the goal. And the phrase from dust to dust is about our bodies, not our immortal souls. He's saying we are meant to live, not just wait to die. So then, what does it mean to Longfellow to live? Next stanza Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way but to act that each tomorrow find us farther than today. The purpose of life is not enjoyment or sorrow. Life is neither pleasure or pain. Life is not sensual in nature. The purpose or meaning of life is not to feel, it's to act, it's to move forward even a little bit day by day. And if you follow any personal development or stoicism, which is quite popular these days, this should be starting to sound very familiar. So that's the purpose of life, to advance and to grow. Next stanza. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums are beating, funeral marches to the grave. So art is long and time is fleeting. Maybe here he doesn't necessarily mean art, but our creations, whatever they may be, whether that be family or our contributions to a career or anything that we create that lives beyond us. And it's what we do in life that matters because time is fleeting and our hearts though stout and brave. And here comes the heartbeat. The very heartbeat in our chest that he's mimicking in meter is itself a marching drum. The same trochaic tetrameter also makes a great marching rhythm. Left, 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 right, left, 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 right, left. Do you hear it? Heartbeats and marching drums. He's referencing himself. Like Rilke, He knows what he's doing. He is aware he's chosen a heartbeat rhythm, a marching rhythm, and he wants you to know that he knows. He's looking you square in the eye with full awareness of his power. This is mastery. If you've ever been so good at something that you can watch yourself being brilliant at it while being brilliant, that's mastery. Next stanza In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb driven cattle. Be a hero in the strife. So now he's looping in war themes, marching drums, broad fields of battle, a bivouac is where soldiers camp in open air, and he's saying, Be a hero in the strife. Now, some may be tempted to argue with some of these assertions. They may argue with the war themes. They may argue that life is about more than doing, it's also about thinking and feeling. But you have to keep in mind, this is a young man. These are the images that resonate with young men, and all men in some ways. War, strife, accomplishment, heroism. This is the warrior archetype. These are timeless themes accessible to all. Poetry for all men. And you can see now why this became a timeless poem. And also why, to be fair, later more quote sophisticated poets would look down on it. It doesn't really compare to Walt Whitman and may even seem simplistic by comparison. But only because its teachings have gotten taken for granted, I think. I think it also benefits certain sectors of society for men to not feel this noble warrior strength in approaching their lives. There I said it, and next week's poem will demonstrate that, so please stay tuned. Next stanza. Trust no future, how pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Don't live in the future or the past. There falls in different ways. Live in the now and act with a full heart, with a warrior's heart, and eyes turned towards the divine. He acknowledges the reality of God as a part of us, as both an inspiration and a judge. This is living Christianity reflected in masculine hierarchy. These are inspiring themes, mythological themes, didactic, which is to say instructive themes. Remember, this is a psalm of life. This is a young man listening to preaching about looking forward to death, and he's preaching about life in response. Next two stanzas. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing over life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. The lives of great men of history inspire us, and thus it is our duty to live and inspire others. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and we should live in such a way as to have our shoulders be stood upon. And this is how men can give hope to other men, that we, walking our roads, leave footprints for our shipwreck brothers to follow. My interview guest this week, Zach Small, referenced this exact idea in our podcast conversation with his group, the Fraternity of Excellence. And this is the very spirit of the renaissance of men, that I have followed footprints and I hope to leave others for men after me to follow. So I will be sure to check out that conversation. Final stanza, let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Again, the admonition to act, let us then be up and doing, get up, get it done, with what we call today outcome independence, a heart for any fate, act for the sake of action, not result, still achieving, still pursuing. Notice the critical order here. Still pursuing, still achieving works rhythmically, but it doesn't land in the same way thematically. Achieve first, then pursue. That's an inspiring construction. Still achieving, still pursuing. He's rolling forward to the final line. You can feel the momentum. It's the setup, it's the alley oop. Learn to labor and to wait. Boom. Six powerful words echoing through time, seven syllables, learn to labor and to wait. The whole poem condensed in a single line, and you can carry that with you now. If you remember nothing else except for that final line, you can now carry that. In fact, I almost want to get this tattooed on my arm. Maybe I will. Learn to labor and to wait. The nobility and honor and virtue of effort and patience Every man who has ever achieved anything knows this feeling that there are no overnight successes. Learn to labor and to wait. The implication? Good things are coming to those who do those things. And as we work backwards through the poem, let's look at the themes in context. So passing on a legacy to Shipwreck Brothers, making our lives sublime, living in the moment, being a hero in the war of life, the creation of a legacy walking the roads of life past pain and pleasure, triumphing over death, waking the soul from its slumber, all of this is generated by the attitude embodied by six powerful words, learn to labor and to wait. And the seeming simplicity of such a basic sounding poem unfolds to unimaginable depths. So modern poets may laugh, but I think that's because they've lost sight of the value of these lessons. This is the distilled essence of what it means to be a man and powerful lessons for boys, something to pass along to our sons in a language they'll understand. Now, as you listen to the poem again, I hope you take Longfellow's words with you into your day while you act to move yourself that much further forward. And I invite you to write me at poetry at dot com with your thoughts or any poems that you'd like to hear read. Once again... This is Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. What the heart of the young man said to the psalmist. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act, that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums, are beating, funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb-driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, how or pleasant, let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another, sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing, with a heart for any fate, still achieving. Still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait.